So value matters um, to the extent it creates demand, but the amount of demand that that generates in a normal cycle, given infinite liquidity is relatively small amount is very little, but when there's no liquidity, that's all that matters. And so, um, value, this is a period where discounted cash flows will once again matter. Woohoo! It's almost like uh, crazy to think, right? Um, but actual cash on cash returns, um, is what ultimately will matter, um, you know, for corporations. So, um, you know, get out your kind of DCF models again. Uh, it's actually going to make a big difference. Welcome to Excess Returns, where we focus on what works over the long term in the markets. Join us as we talk about the strategies and tactics that can help you become a better long-term investor. Justin Carboneau and Jack Forehand are principals at Validia Capital Management. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Validia Capital. No information on this podcast should be construed as investment advice. Securities discussed in the podcast may be holdings of clients of Validia Capital. Hey guys, this is Justin. In this episode, Jack and I sit down with options volatility expert, Jim Croissant, founder of Kai Volatility Advisors. Jim has been at the forefront of understanding the influence of option dealer hedging on the market and volatility, and he's created investment strategies that look to exploit this informational edge. We talked to Jim about a whole host of option-related topics. On the backside of the conversation, we asked Jim about his views on the current macro environment, the outlook for value stocks, and the important role monetary and fiscal stimulus have on economic and societal outcomes. As always, thank you for listening. Please enjoy this discussion with Jim Croissant of Kai Volatility. Hi, Jim. Thank you very much for joining us today. Hey, thanks for having me. I think I first learned about you, it was a couple of years ago, and Jack and I talk on a daily basis, and he would call me up in the morning and tell me about this guy on Twitter he was following using words like Vanna, Gamma, Vanna White, Gorilla, dropping these emojis and talking about breadcrumbs. And I had no idea what he was talking about, but here we are. <laughs> yeah, I would call Justin up and I would, I'd be talking about Vanna White and I'd be talking about the summer of George and he's like, what, what are you talking about? Like, what does any of this mean? <laughs> it, it's become its own language for sure. Yeah, they, the old followers, I can say anything and they pick up right away. Uh, I have to do a lot of translation these days, but um, yeah, those were the, you know, three, four years ago, three years ago or so was, uh, was an interesting time, right? Cause that's kind of when the whole language developed. Yeah. But somebody like yourself, Jack, is, it makes it very interesting. Yeah. So, I mean, today, today's talk, we're going to dive into things like the things that you've kind of helped educate a lot of people on. I mean, the importance of option dealers and flows and hedging the impact it has on stocks and the markets, um, understanding the drivers of volatility and how investors like yourself are developing investment strategies that are looking to profit from these trends and also manage risk. Um, it's been kind of an eye-opening uh, thing for us because we tend to be just a little bit more fundamentally based uh, systematic investors. So these concepts, which are very, very important for the markets, um, are going to be good to discuss and talk about. I mean, our audience is a little bit more retail oriented. Um, so some of our stuff might be a little bit, uh, more basic, but I think that'll help sort of frame up, uh, as we get into the, you know, meat of the discussion, um, why this stuff, stuff is important. So to start just, I mean, really at a high level, I thought I'd just ask you, you know, if you could just talk to us about what an option dealer actually does, what they do and why it's important to understand their function in the market. Yeah, most people um, don't fully understand uh, that, that, you know, when you come to buy something in the market, um, there's not always somebody on the other side who's going to uh, be able to 
you know, sell, sell it to you or vice versa. Um, especially in the old days when markets were less liquid, there were market makers for stocks. They were called specialists, right? Um, you know, the, the way an exchange works broadly is they bring people, buyers and sellers together, but if markets aren't a liquid, they need somebody to stand there to say, okay, what is the current market? And so a market maker, uh, makes a market and how do they make a market? They do it based on figuring out where they can offset their risk in other places in the market. And, um, and something like options, which are every strike is not a uh, liquid. There's not always a buyer and seller of every strike at all times, um, particularly across more liquid option chains. Um, somebody's got to step in and make a market and that's, there's thousands of thousands of strikes, right? Um, uh, so how do they do that? Well, they, a market maker in the vol space will draw a volatility surface, try and keep, keep some relative value, uh, probabilistically from one strike over one expiration to another strike, another expiration, cross asset from one asset to another, right? Uh, and all across this kind of matrix, um, there's a broad relative value, uh, construct, but a market maker's role is to make a bid ask spread. And at the end of the day, try and take as little risk as possible. I think that's the key concept, right? The goal here is to take, uh, to extract a yield like a business would, like an insurance company or somebody else, right? Uh, would, uh, a, a margin and to take little to no risk in the process. Um, that means that in order to limit their risk, they need to, as options expire, as time passes, as the level of vol changes, as the market moves, they have to rebalance their deltas. They have to rebalance their vol, their vega, their theta, all kinds of other exposures. Uh, and that's what a market maker does. And, and a market maker is in a way, uh, warehousing some risk, right? There are other entities other than market makers that have a similar, uh, follow a generally similar process. Uh, banks, for example, sell structured products. They capture a bid ask spread. They try and offset, offlay that risk in the public markets or other places, right? There's all kinds of other uh, players like this, hedge funds, et cetera, that, that, that make money this way. At the end of the day, this group that warehouses that risk that the broad customer base is taking, uh, we refer to as dealers. Uh, they are taking the other side of trades. Um, and a dealer ultimately, um, has, uh, you know, it, it has the other side of whatever the, the broad, uh, you know, buy side is doing. Um, and, and that is important because these dealers warehouse the majority of the risk in the market and they have a certain feedback loop. They have a certain, uh, set of, uh, you know, rehedging that they have to do at, at given uh, intervals. And so if you understand where, how the dealers or the, you know, the street is positioned, how they have to, to control the, the and warehouse the risk, uh, you have an advantage because you understand what the reaction function is, um, of, of the majority of the positioning out there that is being hedged. Um, and that's the important kind of aha concept that people have to probably understand. This isn't just true for options. This is true for all products, right? Um, on, but broadly the options market represents the full distribution of the risk, um, in markets. Um, and a lot of the risk from different structured products, other types of vehicles does get translated into kind of the options world. It is the risk management, um, you know, uh, function of, uh, you know, of the world. Um, and that's why banks are also putting on certain trades all the time in the option space to offset their risk, the part of the distribution that they have uh, real risk to. Uh, and so broadly understanding the whole 
risk, not just in the options specifically, but across the markets is critical when you're thinking about these rehedging flows, um, whether they're Vana, Charm, Gamma, uh, Voma, Veda, whichever kind of second order or third order Greek you want to talk about. But understanding what that positioning is, is critical to understanding what the actual feedback loop is um, as things change in the market. I'm thinking back to COVID when you had all this options activity and you had, you know, huge amount of option, options volume. I mean, maybe it's obviously come probably come down now, but what percentage of flows are driven by these option dealers rebalancing, repositioning and hedging out some of their risk? Um, it depends, right? Depends on how close you are to certain positioning and time because, uh, these effects are not linear. Um, it depends on, uh, like you said, uh, how much volume is being traded and, and not just volume being traded, but structured volume. I mean, you can have periods where customers are taking lots of positioning. There's lots of trading, but they, there may be less decision. Like there may be more indecision about direction. Um, broadly dealer positioning is stronger when there's trend. Um, that doesn't mean trend up or trend down. Uh, it could. But it could mean a trend in vol or a trend somewhere in the market, a certain type of rotation. As you'd imagine, as human beings, we seek out when we have positive returns, we crowd into those trades, right? Uh, when we have bad returns, we shy away from them, right? So people, trades get naturally crowded. There's a momentum factor. And the more trend there is, the more reinforcing investment there is in that, the more trend there is, et cetera. But that leads to more dealer positioning and a structured type of flow that happened during those periods. Uh, for example, in, in recent history, uh, you know, uh, 2000, March of 2000 to Jan of this last year, secular trend up, um, right? What did we see? Massive speculation calls. The more we started kept rallying, the more people, retail started speculating in tech and meme calls. Also, index puts. There are lots of hedgers in the institutional side coming and hedging on the on the broad market institutional index put side to, for, for protection because they're making money and they want to kind of hedge hedge their exposure. So broadly, uh, you know, it had very structured positionings in certain parts of the market. Well, what happened is the market came out of trend. Well, the call speculation came off, right? We have much more balanced. There's a lot of volume still actually happening right now, but it's much more two-sided. Uh, and now on the put side, the index, because everybody was hedged on the, on the put side of the indexes, there's a feedback loop as we've declined what's happened. Uh, there's been massive put selling right into these declines because people are trying to monetize them. The less they perform, they also, the more they want to liquidate them and get out of that, uh, that, that hedge, which hasn't been working. And the more people are crowding into the trades that have been working, which has broadly been selling puts and selling stock. Right. And so now you're getting a different kind of crowding. And this is what leads to cycles as well. Right. I mean, you've seen this in the vol space. I don't know if you, uh, this is maybe a little early in the conversation to dive into this, but we've seen this real second move phenomenon throughout, you know, not just recent history, but broadly where vol gets very, very, uh, you know, skew and vol gets very, very bid. Uh, the customers are, are long, uh, the puts they're hedged dealers are short them. And then as, as you, uh, decline, that means that vol broadly gets really, really compressed into a decline, particularly on a fixed strike basis. Uh, eventually this goes on for a bit. Everybody starts liquidating their puts because they didn't work into a big decline like they wanted them to, kind of like what we're seeing now. Um, and eventually that sows the, you know, the seeds of, of a real vol event. We saw this AUG 2015 big vol event. 
People hedged dramatically because of that, led to Feb 16, which was a massive vol liquidation. People, uh, that vault, which was the biggest decline we'd seen since 2011, right? Five years, we got this 12% decline February 16th and vol, people lost money on their long vol into that decline. That led to a lot of uh, selling of vol products, uh, you know, 16, 17, some of the biggest vol compression, the biggest vol compression we've ever seen. Uh, the launch of new ETFs, new products, uh, you know, the XIV product, right? Which everybody knows about now in retrospect, which eventually led to overreach on selling balls and a big vol event. Everybody then goes to, Hey, I'm never selling vol again. That's you'd be an idiot to sell vol. Look at the losses. These guys have all blown out. Everybody starts hedging again, right? The cycle begins again. Late 18, the decline is much more step, 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 step. Ball doesn't perform. Uh, these three month decline bigger. Decline than we'd seen since 2009. You'd think ball would really perform. It didn't. If you're a long vol fund, you didn't do well into that 19% decline. So what does that do again? Everybody's like, biggest decline we've ever seen, you know, and I've never seen in 14, you know, uh, whatever, whatever it was at that point, sorry, 10 years, a decade, uh, and vol doesn't even work. Why would you ever own vol? Vol liquidation. Fast forward a year and change from 2020, boom. The day of expiration, actually the day after expiration, decline begins. The day after March expiration, it ends. It was a vol event. It was based on positioning. It was, yes, COVID matters, but the speed and size of that event and the V recovery was because vol was um, over overwritten. And so here we are. We called for this going into it. This is part of why our long vol product has performed so well. The majority of long vol products haven't made money this year and actually lost money despite a 20% kind of decline in markets, right? Um, fixed strike vol has been an absolute uh, disaster, right? Um, we called for it very vocally going into this. People were overhedged. The skew was very high. Customs were hedged. So we got massive selling of vol into this decline and reflexively it's pinned the market. So this is kind of how the whole machine works. We can, uh, you know, talk more detail about, about these things, but at the end of the day, uh, there's a, a reflexive cycle to these things. And a lot of the reflexivity that big investors have talked about for years in terms of market structure, like George Soros and others, right? They really are mathematically reflected in actually how people are participating along the distribution of outcomes. And you can look at that mathematically. Well, that's one thing I wanted to ask you here is, you know, it seems like through Twitter and the podcast that you've done and also other guys that are sort of bringing this front and center um, to investors' attention that it would seem like this is kind of new, but has this concept of like looking at the dealer positioning and the implicate, has this been going on behind the scenes for a lot longer than maybe many people think just because it's a concept that's a little bit hard to understand and there wasn't people vocally out there talking about it like you are? The answer is no. I mean, there's always a place that people are, are, are doing this. Um, this is something that I didn't read in a book or I didn't learn from somebody else. Um, this is something that you learn kind of as a participant in markets, if you're, um, and it's funny, I, the more I verbalize it, the more I have people who have been traders for 25 years that know me or, or that don't know me that, that call me, text me, email me saying, oh my God, I, you know, started reading your stuff and this is stuff I've known in the back of my head or we kind of traded anecdotally trying to get out of in front of flows, right? For quite some time, but never fully appreciated kind of the math and 
and, and how you would quantitatively approach this. So I think it's something that, you know, subtly people understood, but that it's really come to the forefront. I'm sure, you know, again, there's, there's other entities which have caught on this. There's a, there's a real edge there that, um, and it's been around since time incarnate. I mean, I've been here, uh, you know, I've been in this business for 24 years now. And I remember, you know, two years in thinking about how we had certain positioning and we better get out in front of that, that charm flow, that, that Delta decay. We didn't call it charm flow Delta day, you know, day one plus decay, uh, was going to change your Delta. Um, but really taking that second step and understanding where's everybody else positioned, how are they going to react? Understanding the other products that are involved and how they all relate this whole broad dealer positioning approach is something that, you know, that we've created, that we've been talking about, uh, more vocally, we have a product. That's why we talk about it vocally, uh, you know, that we, uh, that we use. Um, and, uh, and before that, you know, there was really nobody else talking. So I guess there's probably no simple tool out there that you can use to see how these dealers are positioned then. Definitely not simple. No, no, absolutely not. Um, I think, um, you know, first of all, there's the first challenge of how do you measure the positioning? Uh, how do you aggregate it? Uh, how do you, uh, get the data? Um, you know, there's publicly, there's a lot of entities out there publicly giving open interest data or, uh, options, uh, you know, based on that, whether they traded near the bid or the offer, what that means and doing some toy models, right. But, uh, just like any other toy model that'll work, uh, 60, 70% of the time. And then it'll get you in trouble. The other 20, 30, whatever it is, 40% of the time. Um, and so getting it right is, is difficult. The first, that's the first step. Second step is once you have the data, if you have the accurate data is, is understanding what the actual reaction function is of dealers. Um, you know, uh, just because you see open interest being one way, it doesn't mean dealers necessarily have that other side, um, either, right. You could have customer to customer open interest, which is a completely different flow. So, um, it's complicated. It's hard. That's why there's an edge there. Um, but at the end of the day, there is a, um, you know, there is an incredibly valuable, um, you know, edge here. Uh, you asked me at the beginning, what percent of flows does this, um, approximately dictate? And I said, it depends. I never answered your question. Let me be more specific. 10 to 50%, depending on the scenario. Um, which is dramatic. And that's for the broad market. That's for the broad S and P 500, um, et cetera. If you think about it, um, I told you at certain points, you could have 50% of the, uh, answers, you know, 50% of the flows. Um, that's a, that's a huge advantage. It doesn't mean you have all the flows. It doesn't mean you have all the answers, but you can broadly model a distribution and, and understand the probabilities of different outcomes, um, with that flow. Uh, and that's incredibly valuable. You told a story on Twitter that really helped me understand the impact of hedging on actual outcomes from back when you were on the trading floor. And you, you talked about someone named Gary. I don't think that was actually their real name, but I, I'm wondering if you could tell that story because that really helped me to understand some of these concepts. Yeah. The names have been changed to protect the innocent or, or the not so innocent, uh, even though this came from the trading floor, but the, um, but the reality is, yeah. So the story I told, and it's, it's kind of available on Twitter. If somebody ever wants to go check it out, um, is. You know, essentially, um, if you think about it, most people think about options as insurance, right? And they are insurance products, but the difference here is insurance for, let's say a tornado, um, doesn't, uh, ultimately if the, if, if there's insurance on the tornado, it doesn't affect the odds or the probabilities of that tornado coming through town. Um, and I think most people have been looking at options, uh, in a kind of in this static, uh, picture thinking that, okay, this is a separate event and. Whether I bet on these options or not has zero effect on whether or not that event occurs. 
In markets, that's not true. In markets, options, uh, the insurance products themselves, other bets ultimately have a reflexive effect on whether or not on the probabilities of, of that outcome occurring, right? Um, and I use this analogy of, of, um, of this guy, Gary, on, on, on the trading floor. There used to be all these bets when things would get slow on the trading floor. Um, where, uh, and it's, it's funny, it's not just people on the trading floor. I mean, th people would be on phones with, you know, Paris and, you know, London and, and trading contracts on, on eating challenges or, or sports challenges or whatever. So I get the story of, of this clerk who was kind of known for taking a lot of these big, these big eating challenges or different challenges. But invariably, um, you know, uh, he would be involved in the bets. People would give him money to say, oh, well, this, and, uh, you know, do you think you can do this? Uh, if you can, you know, you, I'll give you 20% of my bet here. And so ultimately, um, he was incentivized, right. Uh, to, to actually, uh, make sure a certain outcome would be more likely and people would get information about that. So betting against Gary Bronley when he was doing these challenges was a was a loser's bet. At the end of the day, he had a certain uh, level he had to meet and he was more incentivized to do it. Even if it made him sick, he'd go far enough to make sure he met some challenge because he had enough of a payday. There was enough of an incentive for him to do that. And so reflexively, the bets would affect the outcome of that challenge. And so I use that as kind of a metaphor for uh, dealer positioning. At the end of the day, dealers are positioned a certain way. If, if a bet, if a certain number of bets are, are on the odds of it, um, occurring, um, in certain situations may be higher and certain others may be lower because they have to get out depending on who has to do it and understanding that dealers and their incentives, um, ultimately, um, when reflexively what they will have to do in the bets will help you understand the probabilities of those bets, uh, outcomes occurring. And so it's, um, kind of a cheeky kind of way to, you know, explain kind of what happens, but, but ultimately, obviously in markets, it's a bit more complicated. It's not just one guy, Gary and, and his outcomes, but you, you know, the idea was you don't bet against Gary. Uh, if Gary has an incentive to do something, uh, be careful against betting against him. Cause ultimately, well, it, this isn't just a static bet. This isn't some guy who's, who's doing the challenge that's outside of the betting arena that has no out, you know, uh, no influence on the outcomes. Um, if it were, it would be a different story. What really drove this home for me was the Trump Biden election, because I was one of these people thinking this is a disaster. We're going to have a disputed election. The market's going to tank after that. And you were consistently saying coming up to it, this event is overhedged. It's not going to be what people think it was. And, and you were completely right about that. Yeah. So, I mean, we've seen this again, we can walk through times. This is that Trump election was when we were kind of present on Twitter, very vocal about it. So I think it really made the point, uh, pretty clear. Because uh, people saw it in real time, but you know, Brexit was a good one, right? Brexit was the worst case outcome. It was exactly what uh, people were most afraid of. Uh, it seemed like it would be a cataclysmic occurrence. But based on hedging, people were very hedged for it. People expected. People were afraid. They didn't expect the outcome, but they were afraid of that outcome. And so they had bought a lot of puts, uh, a lot of out of the money puts to protect themselves during that time, to a point where that event ball was incredibly high relative to everything around it. But at the end of the day, that event passes, right? And when that event passes, regardless of the outcome, those puts, right? As long as they, and generally when that, when they buy them in uh, mass, they further and further out of money puts become really expensive. So there's a very high bar for what needs to happen 
in order for those puts to be in the money. And if those puts don't become in the money because they're so expensive and there's, you know, if they don't become in the money at the, at the end of the day, the dealers have a bunch of stock to buy back because they're short stock. And they're also long, a bunch of puts behind because the, the, the amount of margin between these one day puts and the puts behind it are very high. So when these things start to happen and, and the current, the odds of, uh, the size of the drop that would need to happen to make these result uh, doesn't come to pass, regardless of what the actual outcome was, there is a massive tidal wave of, of buying of options, uh, buying of the of Delta, selling of options, which then leads to more Vana compression, to more buying of Delta. There's a big loop. Happened during Brexit. Happened during the first Trump election. Regardless of what you think about, um, you know, whether Trump was should have been a good election or not, uh, the reality is what people were afraid of and why people were hedging during the first Trump election in 16 was because they were afraid of Trump getting elected and he got elected and the market rallied dramatically the next day, right? After a first little V bottom, same thing there. Trump 2020 election, like fear was uh, a contested election. We got the contested election, worst case scenario. What happened again? Little dip and then off to the races, right? Think about it in terms of Feb, March, 2022. This is not an event hedging as much as everybody was short the March expiration. They were long the Feb expiration. You, we knew about COVID in January. We were talking about it for a month. I remember talking to my institutional guys. I had a long vol fund. I was talking about them explaining kind of the dynamics. And they were like, what's happening? Why is this market still rallying? Do they know what's going on over in China right now? Do they know how dangerous this is? And the answer was yes, but the markets were hedged. Then as soon as Feb, Feb options expired, everybody was short the march in terms of uh, customers. Uh, they weren't hedged anymore kind of threw in the towel, you get a dramatic decline the next day. When we get to March expiration, this is the kind of the opposite effect, massive liquidation. That vault curve is inverted. The March um, one day options going into that March expiration were so irrationally high relative to the things behind it. Nobody was going to go buy those back there. Like and buy something for, you know, half the vault five days later. So they're going to go buy that. So what happens when those options disappear and that liquidation is gone? Everybody all of a sudden is long ball. And it's, and they're along it very cheaply because the, the higher vol that they had, right? Re cheap relative to where the vol was. So the vol has to collapse. When that vol collapses, there's a massive Vana push and Delta buyback. And the whole thing becomes a V bottom on the way back. So we see this again and again, particularly at volatile times when vol is inverted and there's a big event. Uh, it is, um, kind of the, uh, the thing that drives a lot of these adages that people have talked about for years, but. Haven't probably understood that dynamics underneath, like, you know, never short a dull market or, you know, um, uh, you know, again, there's, there's a million, I could go through all the market structure kind of, uh, you know, uh, elevator down, escalator up the way the Ivana charm flows, all of these adages really are a function of this market, um, positioning and how market structure works. Um, we're mostly a long-term podcast, but, uh, I don't, th I think there's an unwritten rule with podcast hosts that if you have you on, you have to at least ask for some breadcrumbs. So yeah, I know we're, we're interviewing on July 12th. I believe you've talked about July 13th is the potential opening of a window of weakness. You've talked about this being the summer of George with maybe some lower volatility. I'm wondering if you could talk about when you look at dealer positioning, what it kind of tells you about maybe where we're headed. Yeah, this is a very important time. Um, we were very vocal uh, for the last several months uh, that, well, first, first off, it was clear that, as I mentioned, the markets were hedged going into Feb and March. Honestly, we probably would have had a a blow off top if, if Russia had invaded Ukraine, given how positioning was, this is a very 
interesting on cycle um, because there were still a lot of positive flows coming in. Uh, that you know there was still a lot of speculation, still a lot of uh, uh, money in in, in, in uh, retail balance sheets and and uh, stock buybacks, et cetera. All that was happening while the markets were very well hedged. So, and there was a lot of short interest growing. So there was an imbalance of supply and demand. You would have normally gotten a blow off top or a, lot, a push towards the highs before some type of collapse. Russia invaded Ukraine that created inflationary impulse right at the time when people are hedged. That is a, that has created a historic path. And that path has been dramatic wall compression into a very big decline. And, it, and it's hard to overstate how dramatic this vol compression has been. People think of vol as the VIX. They don't understand what, what vol actually is. The VIX is not a tradable thing. It, it measures the complete option chain. Uh, and, you know, there's a calculation, which I won't go through of 30 day vol, um, but there is skew in the market. So broadly, there's a thing called fixed rate vol, which is what vol really is, which is how that curve is shifting as you slide down markets. As they, sh as they slide down, they slid down 25% in an order of three months, really the first two months, um, slide to a much higher vol. That vol, um, was not a, uh, you know, what the at the money vol was, which was a 20, it was a 40 vol. As we dropped that vol has come down 15, uh, vol points. Um, you know, trading vol long vol has been an incredibly uh, unprofitable exercise. Anybody who's in the long vol space has made any money, uh, uh, you know, has, has done it with great, great effort, believe it or not, into this decline. And most people, most naive hedgers uh, have been long puts and have seen those hedges not work for them. So what does that drive? Massive put selling, massive vol liquidation. Again, that attitude we talked about that. Why would I ever be long vol? We got the 25% decline I expected and it's not working for me. And so whether you're buying puts or or investing in long vol funds, um, you're pretty fed up right now. And so all those long vol hedgers are, are selling, have been selling, and it's created a massive vol supply. Add to that the, all the vol sellers who have made tremendous money who are getting inflows because it's worked all these years. And now guess what? The market declines and it works again. You know, why wouldn't you? It seems like the easiest trade on the planet. It's negative beta, sell vol, um, right? Uh, but that's the mentality. And so that naturally leads to more writers of vol. Um, and there's all kinds of strategies that are getting inflows that are actually short vol strategies into this decline. Well, here we are now um, after, you know, what we, after with that decline, that kind of uh, compressed vol, we've seen this process occurring and that's led during low liquidity during the summer much like it did last summer to a period of massive vol compression where dealers are, are holding long vol and consistently getting more and more vol every day and having to sell it themselves. And even though you're getting some realized moves that are coming from all the other parts of the market, right? All of the, the bond, if you look at every other part of the market, other than index vol, really every other part, whether it's Bitcoin or tech or, you know, the bond vol, like the move is at all time, you know, record highs here. Um, you know, fix, uh, sorry, FX vol is going through the roof. Equity vol continues to be the plug in the market. And so that plug has completely pinned the market, created mean reversion to a point where it's made it very hard for people who are hedged to also to monetize their hedges, even though they're losing on all these other places where there's risk. That can only go on for so long. Um, at some point people, it's a function of time and distance. Entities won't stick with a losing trade for generally, you know, forever. Um, and so if, uh, you 
you're, if you've seen a losing trade, it's particularly into a declining market where you would have expected some profit, uh, you start to liquidate those trades and we're seeing them. So we're watching dealer positioning and that hedging has gone. We've gone from record skew levels to record flat skew entities have been selling volume, selling skew, and it's been profitable. So there are the entities who are not hedging a, but the entities that were taking more and more risk and given in the context of all the other risks that exist, the macro risks though. And we can talk about later and all the other things that are going on, all the places of lack of liquidity, they're essentially all dependent on this S and P vol and it's not working for them. And that's the claim. So here we are July 13th and we're entering a period where more and more we're seeing dealer positioning, not over hedged, um, more, more equally hedged than it was. Um, now it takes time, uh, or, you know, and during these periods, when you now begin to see things slightly less hedged, especially given all the other macro risks and the tail that exists on the market, given the amount of leverage and other risks that there are in the market, you want to really start maybe now actually start allocating to long ball. That's counterintuitive, but long ball hasn't performed. Now the key is timing, right? Cause you can't just dump money in the long ball for the next five months hoping, um, but finding these periods where there's real weakness and understanding when these transitions happen, where there's a momentary weakness involved, where they can break, where dealers are not, you know, well enough hedged or customers are not, not well enough hedged. These are windows of, of particular weakness that you want to particularly be flexible on, especially as you get to these secular periods where you're no longer in the second move phenomenon, but moving back to potential first. And so here we are and the window's opening, right? That doesn't mean to be clear that this, this market's going to collapse, but it does mean there's a higher risk and a fatter tail and the potential for it in this window in general, but also in this window, particularly given how a dealer positioning has changed. Um, so we're likely to not see it unpinning this month, but the odds are increasing. And that's what you have to understand. And particularly if you're going to see it, it's in this window, right? So this is a period to be very, very nimble and hedged for a little bit on a chance for a big positive payout, lower probability still but big potential fat tail, um, outcome. Um, it starts today. That doesn't, I mean, tomorrow, um, it doesn't mean that, um, that it's going to happen tomorrow. That's when the window starts to open. It's also a five week cycle. So these Vaughn and charm flows, which I haven't really talked on here, but the buyback and stock that comes from dealers naturally being short put long call, um, you know, in the indexes that buyback of Vaughn and charm slows. That's something we've been seeing supporting this market really for that last week, which is a very strong period where you have support compared with that vol compression, kind of that loop that, that during this window is coming off the table. So it's not really a window of weakness. I call it that cause it's a little more catchy. It's really a window of non-strength that doesn't have quite the catchiness, right? There's a window of less support. Um, that doesn't mean a market should go down, uh, but that means it's less likely to go up. Um, and when a market is less likely to be supported, where there's less likely to be, uh, this demand that comes in, that can be anywhere from 10 to 50% of the flows, uh, on a regular basis. And, and that's the case for two weeks that opens a window for potential weakness. And given the other stresses there are in the market, uh, and given that this has been the plug, that's very important to understand in this during this time. Hopefully I didn't, it's a long kind of winded kind of explanation, but hopefully I didn't lose you guys along the way. No, that was great. And you, you, you alluded to a concept that I think is really important. And, you know, a lot of people will take your work on Twitter and they'll try to use it in a binary way. So markets going up or markets going down and like, just thinking about, it's clear you think about all of this in probability. So 
Can you talk a little bit about the importance of thinking probabilistically? Yeah, that's uh, such a great point, great question. I try to hammer on this as much as I can, but some people just aren't used to thinking that, right? As an options trader, all we do is probability all day, right? Every option has a probability and it's part of a broader distribution, right? Um, and I've made this argument, I'll make it again on here. Um, you know, most people call options a derivative. Why? Because it's come from, uh, you know, originally people looked at stocks and bonds. That's how financial markets started. So people egocentrically think uh, anything that's based on that is a derivative. But mathematically, if you think about what options are, they're actually a representation of the full distribution of any one asset's outcomes. Vol is not an option asset class. Options are not an asset class. They are a product. They are a perspective on any asset class. And they're much more flexible and robust and a clear view of the full entity, which is a, an asset, whether it's a stock or a bond or a commodity. And what I mean by that is any option represents a different point on the option, uh, the, the outcome, the distribution of outcomes at any point in time. It's a three-dimensional surface of probabilities that the market's betting on any outcome, as opposed to a stock or a bond or commodity, which essentially are binary, like you said, are either up or down. So most everybody thinks about the world in buy or sell, but the reality is an option is actually not a derivative. It's the underlying of each, uh, of each asset and the asset price is the summary, right? It's the expected value of that total distribution. And so understanding probability and under, you, you can have two stocks, for example, same industry, right? Same market cap, no name. And you would think as a stock trader that those two stocks are the same exact stock, but the underlying distribution of them could be incredibly different. One might have a really fat right tail. One might have a very fat left tail. One might be left distributed, might be, one might be right distributed, completely different assets, completely different personalities, completely different people. It's like looking at two people that are the same weight and the same color and saying they're the same people. They're not the same people. They have different probabilities, different sets of uh, characteristics. Um, and so options represent the full distribution of outcomes. And we really need to think about probabilities when we're betting. I would argue there's no reason to trade stock or, or bonds or anything ever, because you're much better uh, suited to trade the specific part of the distribution that you want to bet on. It's much more flexible, much more robust. I think this is a big reason why we've seen a secular, since I've been in the business for 24 years, a secular increase in vol and options trading it's not just cyclical, it's very much secular. And, and that's because the adoption is these are superior products. They allow you to bet on much more precise outcomes in much more precise probabilistic ways. And I think that's important. That's how we should all be looking at markets and thinking about the world. When we make decisions, whether we do it mathematically or not, we do probability in our heads. What are the odds of this? Is this a good idea? Why? We're multivariate thinking about different outcomes and probabilistic coming to some type of conclusion in our heads. We may not rationally think about that all out uh, each day, but we should. And doing that actually comes to better outcomes. How do you think long-term investors should be thinking about this? Like, um, for example, I mean, one could argue or think that, you know, maybe the higher level of options um, and these, the, the dealer positioning, you know, could exacerbate, um, you know, more market volatility or market like crash. I'm thinking of Corey Hofstein's liquidity cascades and, you know, uh, the dealers play a part in his sort of framework that he says may contribute to liquidity cascades in the future. But I'm just wondering, as you think about 
the difference between the long-term investor, someone with a five-year time horizon and a short-term investor. Um, what's your opinion on how they should be thinking about that? Corey and I actually, uh, I, the options part in the Corey Austin liquidity cascades piece was, was he and I working together. He actually was consulting with me on that, on that uh, paper. So, uh, so what you read there is a lot of, of the stuff that, um, that, uh, th that I talk about that, that the reality is whether you're looking short-term or long-term understanding and thinking about probability is, is key, right? I mean, we, again, I, I said it before, we think about these things, um, uh, you know, but we don't necessarily put numbers to them and we should. And, um, you know, thinking about the positioning that the, the market has, um, and the fact that it's not just an independent kind of effect, it's not a tornado insurance that we're talking about it has a, as a dealer positioning effect, um, should help you kind of time entrances, um, because you can understand the better odds and the probabilities of certain outcomes. Um, my, my general. Um, you know, I, my general approach, whether it's short-term or long-term is to really think about, okay, now I'm turning positive for X, Y, Z reason. These are the broad, uh, things I understand about market structure and what's happening. And, and this makes me want to be more secularly bullish for, for X reason or Y reason, right? Um, but then using these tools as a timing mechanism, right? Uh, to help me get in, because again, at the end of the day, whether you bought in uh, February of, uh, of, uh, 2020 or March of 2020 made, uh, made a dramatic difference, right? Uh, whether you sold, uh, right in, in, in January of 2020, uh, 2022 or March of 2022, it made a dramatic difference, right? Um, you know, ultimately, um, and, and Corey and I have talked about this on his podcast, uh, flirting with models as well. Um, you know, fundamentals, um, you know, are only a, a good predictor on 10 year time horizons. Right. Um, and, and, in, and the meantime, timing is kind of everything. Uh, it's all about liquidity. Um, so, so broadly, when I think about these things, I do take a fundamental view when we're looking at big, big market cycles. Um, but the, those only, those things only really matter when there's a lack of liquidity in the market. Uh, when, when stocks actually have to fundamentally, uh, create their own cash flow to support uh, th their their stock value. In the meantime, um, it's really a function of how much liquidity there is. And one major component of that is this, this hedging dealer flow component. So a couple different things in there, but and I'm happy to dive into either one, but uh, yeah, there's a, there's a kind of, at the end of the day, liquidity is the whole story. Supply, there's a, there's a, there's a weighing game and there's a voting game, right? And, and the weighing game works over decades. Uh, which is ultimately what is the value of something, but really what matters day to day in markets, week to week, month to month, even year to year, right? Fundamentals have almost no, uh, you know, uh, predictive value, even on an annual or multi-annual basis. What actually matters is how many buyers are there and how many sellers are there. And dealer positioning is a big reflexive effect to that supply and demand equation. So it's a major timing tool for that. In the background and the more longer term things are, you know, Federal Reserve liquidity, uh, you know, uh, how much uh, fiscal spending there is, uh, what earnings growth is like, how much money is actually, you know, um, how much liquidity is, is broadly entering. There's a multivariate equation there. And that's what matters for um, uh, the longer term. Um, but again, um, fundamentals really are only a small part of that. And they matter a lot more only when the rest of the liquidity, the Fed is removed, other liquidity is removed.
Ben Graham's concepts still stay with us, even in the options market. <laughs> um, <clears throat> your, uh, to your point about the macro, um, stuff, that's where we want to kind of shift maybe the rest of the conversation. I, I think we could probably continue to go down the options, uh, rabbit hole, but we thought we'd take the rest of the time to maybe get some of your views on sort of what's happening at a macro level and what some of these implications, um, might be. But maybe generally to start, I wanted just to ask if you could give sort of a general overview of how you think about macro, the framework that you look look at macro through, and then how you think the macro environment has changed post-pandemic. So um, people have heard me kind of talk before, we'll, we'll kind of recognize uh, this broad structure, but I think it's important to back up and always revisit this. Um, much like I think about uh, dealer positioning as a function of liquidity and buying and selling. Um, I think about the whole machine and the big macro picture in terms of buying and selling as well, right? At the end of the day, um, it is just buyers and sellers, right? And, and so there's a big machine, right? And these dealer flow dynamics are certain pipes, but from the top, ultimately the the flows are being determined by really two major pipes. There's, you could argue there's three, one of them is monetary policy, right? And it's how much money is being given to capital. Um, and there's fiscal policy. So how much money is being distributed by, um, by government to people. Um, there's a reflexive earnings one in there as well, right? As, as stocks make money, they also, uh, feed in. But those two pipes are two very distinct pipes and have very distinctly different effects. Um, people think the word stimulus and people have been very confused for some time. This has created a lot of consternation for quite some time. When they hear the word stimulus, they don't differentiate between monetary and fiscal, but they're incredibly different things and they create incredibly different liquidity uh, to different entities. Um, monetary policy, um, lowering interest rates or buying, uh, you know, through QE, buying assets that lower interest rates, ultimately sends money to capital. Why? Because who borrows money? The bottom 40% of people can't borrow money and don't. And the, the top 20, the 20% above that barely borrow any, if they do it for their homes, they do it just for their homes and nothing else. Right. But the majority, um, of people don't take uh, the majority of, of that money that the federal reserve, um, you know, gives out or other central banks gives out who does corporations, incredibly wealthy individuals also borrow a lot of money. Um, they do it to invest in other real estate and to invest in other products to do vet leverage buyouts and do private equity deals, right? There's a lot of leverage that's concentrated in the top 1% of people. And the more money you send to those corporations and those individuals, the more money flows to investment. Corporations, you would think would, and that the theory is broadly that, oh, well, if you print all this money and you, you know, you're increasing the money supply. So, uh, so that should create inflation. Well, guess what? We've been doing secularly increasing fiscal policy since the, since 1980. And, uh, we've seen deflation essentially over that period. Um, you know, uh, there's been dramatic deflation to extent we've had to do more and more and give out more and more money in order to balance that deflation. Why is that? That's incredibly counterintuitive because if you send money 
to corporations. What do corporations do? Uh, they're, they're profit maximizing entities, right? They have a very simple incentive structure. Their goals are to reduce their costs and to capture market share. So to get to, to, to compete uh, on price and product and ultimately create better technologies, better products. Uh, it's natural selection, if you will, free market economics on steroids. If you send money to, to, to that, you're sending money to supply. You are sending money to what I call planet Palo Alto. You're sending money to these, this other planet that's not going into, um, you know, the, the, the money supply. It's going to these corporations that's a, that are on a different planet that create incredible technologies and innovations and, in, and, and compete on price. And that increases supply. We have generated a technological revolution in the last 40 years. That's what led to the duration trade. This is why value didn't perform for 40 years and growth did. Why? Because why bet on cash flows now? Why bet on getting any amount of money now if at the end of the day, you, you're not betting on that superior innovation, the superior technology and better market share 40 years from now, right? Um, and, and, and capturing that market share. Because ultimately, if you make money now, it doesn't matter. You'll, you'll disappear as a company if you don't focus on the future and growth. So that monetary stimulus has created um, a technological revolution, deflationary environment, a move that is secularly into these growth uh, the trades and led to dramatic speculation. Um, why? Because all the entities that were invested in these stocks, which have made more money, which have done more, have uh, invested more in them. And it's a secular momentum factor, kind of like we talked about at the beginning of the show. So we've just dramatically gotten the passive flows, which you have probably heard about uh, Corey Hofstein's paper, all of these other momentum flows into the market that pushed this. This is what allowed Amazon to exist. What does that allow Tesla and Uber and all these other corporations to exist? For the most part, these corporations didn't make money for 20 years, for 20 years. What investment outside of stock markets would you ever, you know, would you give, ever give money if, if you know, uh, they needed more and more money because they weren't making money uh, and, and you were betting on 40 year outcomes? Well, until recently, nobody would ever do that. That was almost insane, right? Um, and I'd argue Amazon wouldn't even exist if, they, if we weren't in a period of dramatic monetary pause. Um, and, and so we've seen that now for 40 years, that's allowed these entities to exist. And that's been deflation. Now that could go on forever because the fed has a dual mandate. Their, their mandate is price stability and maximum employment. And those two things were being met and we were maximizing the GDP growth by doing this, except they don't have a, another mandate, which is very important. We don't live in a place without people, human beings live in the system and ultimately giving more and more money to. Uh, the top to corporations and to investors who invest in those corporations leads to inequality. This is a story as old as time. Uh, money flows to the top because it's profit. It's, it's maximizing it's natural selection. It's, it's, it, it, we're maximizing the mean. The problem with maximizing to the mean, uh, is ultimately this competitive world leads to inequality. Inequality is, you know, equality is not a natural construct. Go point to nature and tell me where equality exists. Um, you know, these ideas of justice and liberty and equality, these are man-made constructs and they're wonderful constructs, right? If we see each other as, a, as equals and, you know, individuals, um, and, and we want to play eye to eye in a society, then these, these things need to exist. But ultimately these, uh, these systems that are efficient, which are give the best violin players to the best violins, not the best violin players to the worst violin players, because 
music is infinitely beautiful, right? That's what Socrates said. Um, ultimately, this leads to a, a problem um, in inequality. And that inequality doesn't, you know, that can't go on forever. And 40 years is two generations. It's just long enough for, um, for, for people to start saying, wait a second, I, my father did worse than his father, and now I'm doing worse than my father, right? Um, and enough to get populism and anger really building. And that's what we've seen. We've seen a massive populist wave coming. It started about eight, nine years ago, and it was given, you know, entities like Bernie Sanders on the left, Donald Trump on the right, both saw it coming and started taking advantage of this wave and started giving rhetoric and, um, you know, uh, things that the populist movement wanted. But it's not just here in the U.S., it's globally, right? Because this whole monetary policy phenomenon has been global. And so as that's happened, we've led to a, hey, uh, we're no longer interested as a people in uh, mean outcomes and optimal outcomes for the total. We're interested in median outcomes because at the end of the day, the average person matters more than the whole, right? And the more you lead to these populist uh, uh, kind of mentalities, the more we have to take money from the rich and give to the poor in some way. And that's what fiscal policy was. Trump kind of brought the right left. Uh, the left went even further left and the whole population now was ready for a populist response. COVID happened. That was the spark. And we got $12 trillion of fiscal, po po uh, fiscal policy. That stimulus, very different than monetary stimulus. And people didn't really catch this early. We were out there vocally talking about it. So we've seen this coming. But that money is helicopter money. That is money that's going directly to people's pockets. Um, whether it's infrastructure spending or healthcare policy or, you know, first time homebuyer tax credits or whatever um, you, you want to call it, all of these things are money flowing to people's pot, uh, pockets. And if you look at people on the bottom, balance sheets as COVID started, exploded. People were doing better than they've ever done in their life. It's counterintuitive, but we gave a populist response. And those balance sheets led to um, inflation, right? There's a combination. It's a supply side issue as well because markets were closed, but uh, because, uh, because, uh, because of COVID. But as we're seeing, as uh, things are reopening, that inflation is not disappearing, right? Uh, because there's an unwind of globalization. Broadly, when inflation increases, we now get, we go from a benevolent cycle to the opposite. It goes from a cooperation game during times of lack of inflation and growth, globalization, to a competition game. And now entities globally are competing over kind of the same, right, the, the, the same pieces. We're trying to internalize um, our own means of production. We're trying to um, improve a lot of, of, of the people. And so um, ultimately that loop now leads to uh, inflation, which leads to more populism, right? And this is the great irony. Money gets sent to people. Uh, that's ultimately inflationary and inflation hurts who the most? People on the bottom. So there really has to be now, on what we started are starting to now see, which we again called for six months ago on a macro basis, which we're now seeing those exact policies are now fiscal responses uh, to inflation, which counterintuitively are going to exacerbate the problem, right? Now, whether it's first time homebuyer tax credits, which we're seeing in some places, gas tax holidays, all kinds of other price controls, people are unhappy. And that populism is still not, uh, has still not been vented and, and, and uh, improved enough, uh, particularly among the cohort that's been the most hurt, who represents the lowest part, which is millennials and younger generations who didn't work 
the, the boomers. They weren't the investing class. They weren't the people with the money who benefited from this wave in financial markets. They were the, the labor class. They were the, uh, they're the entities who haven't been able to afford a home who, who at 20, they're, they're at 25% the rate of home ownership of the boomers were at their age, right? So now we're, we're seeing this and this group also move politically, demographically into the, uh, the political uh, point, uh, where, where they're going to naturally have grown up in this technologically revolutionary time with inequality. So, and the response is going to be for more fairness, more equality more justice. If you look at what our kids are being taught in school for the last 10, 15, 20 years, it's an emphasis on equality. It's an emphasis of these are not a coincidence. They're a response to the inequality and the things that we've seen over the last 40 years. So these cycles are big and they go, they go 40 years and you see them uh, over thousands of years, not just the last hundred, 200, we can walk through them. You know, uh, the sixties, uh, you know, the most recent example, 68 to 82, what happened as interest rates went bottom left to top, right? because of populism and all the, uh, all the, the fiscal policy during that time. Well, markets went nowhere, uh, right? Uh, the, the Dow Jones for 14 years, hard for people to imagine in nominal terms went nowhere for 14 years. It's hard to put your head around that. Um, in, in, in the real terms lost 70% of its value. And that's what happens. Multiple contraction happened, but money comes from the investing class. So supply and demand imbalance happens. There's less demand for for uh, these assets and there's more inflation. So margins, which are now at records, guess what? Compress over those periods. So price to sales, which is at a record, will likely actually the economy will grow relatively well. If inflation continues, you'll begin to see a lot more inventory built. People will bring forward demand and it's demand side economics. You'll actually begin to see, I mean, all this talk about recession. Yeah, we might get a recession in the short term, but it's very much a technical recession relative to a massive uh, growth over the last, which was kind of over-exaggerated over the recent period, we'd broadly expect that growth, if inflation does secularly continue, yeah, we'll get dips, but inflation secularly increases, we'll begin to see good economic growth. Um, but unlike the period we just came from, that economic growth will be met with poor earnings and much poorer multiples because people won't be willing to pay, um, pay the same price. So very kind of, uh, this is really a story that's as old as time. A lot of people just don't understand the difference between monetary policy and fiscal and the way the, water, the, the money flows through the pipe. So our broad way of looking at the world, my broad way is looking, is thinking about these flows and how do they, who do they flow to? Do they flow to investors or, or to buyers of goods? And how does that affect margins and demand for goods, demand for stocks? And what does that mean? Broadly, I can't emphasize enough. The, the economy is not the market and people have been somehow uh, fooled into thinking those two things are the same thing. They're often actually polar opposites and have different um, effects. So, so do you think it's inevitable that we're going to see a lot less of these innovative, long duration type companies? You know, if we look out 20 years from now, we're not going to see the Amazons and the Teslas and those types of companies in this type of world. Yeah. I mean, pretty straightforward, right? If um, I give the analogy of uh, during the Mesozoic uh, era, uh, dinosaurs just got really big. You know, you give incentives and you see the results, right? Uh, if you have a, enough food to eat, uh, unlimited food, unlimited oxygen, things get really big and, and you can create big things. Uh, if you take that oxygen out, things get smaller, things die off. Um, money's the same way. You take, you, you give unlimited money to corporations and you say, you don't need to make money for 20 years. Just come up with the best idea. You spur innovation. It's that simple, right? You take it away and you get creative destruction. 
because entities that may have had a great idea that were 10 years into a, a, a 20, 30 year idea that would have been maybe Amazon. Guess what? They don't have the money to keep going. Who's going to lend to them? Who's going to give them that money? How are they going to fuel? They have to pull back. And some companies, which happens during big busts uh, all the time, will go out of business. They may have had a great idea, great product. They may just get purchased by somebody who has the cash flow and is willing to invest in that, but at a much cheaper price. And it just removes that fuel of, of, um, of growth and, and of innovation. What do you think the Fed's options are here? You know, people are kind of talking about this idea of a soft landing, but, you know, what do you think? First of all, do you think the Fed has the tools to get this inflation under control? And, and if you do, do you think they can do it without causing a significant recession here? Yeah, I mean, the Fed can blow things up if they want. Uh, to be clear, I, I think people misunderstand this when I say the Fed doesn't have the tools to control inflation, yada, yada. They can. They can get, uh, you know, inflation uh, under control in the short term by blowing up the economy. They can create massive creative destruction, liquidation. We can get a crash in the market of, you know, whatever, 70, 80%. You could, you could see that happen, right? And if they do that, yeah, demand will go down. <laughs> People will lose their jobs, but uh, curing inflation at what, in the short term, at what cost? And at the end of the day, you haven't cured the real issue, which is populism and inequality. And so what happens now if the market comes down 70%? Do you think the people at the bottom who never benefited from the last 40 years who are now hurting aren't going to get demand a fiscal response? The fiscal response is here because of that populism. That populism is not going away till it's solved. And that's global. People, 40 years is a long time. People are saying enough is enough. And this is why you're seeing rioting in the streets and you know, uh, all these countries, it's not just the inflation, people were already fed up and now this is happening on top of all that. And so, yeah, the Fed can come in and cure inflation short-term. They can uh, take a cyclical downturn to inflation, but secularly, and I think that's the important part that people miss, secularly, inflation is a function of populism, is a function of fixing inequality globally. And if we're going to do that, and it's not a political stand, if, if as society, we are demanding that, Inflation's here to stay. Interest rates are going up um, secular. Now, that doesn't mean the short term. Right? So the Fed is now desperate to get long-term inflation expectations under control. And the only tool they have is monetary policy. Now, to revisit monetary policy, uh, at the end of the day, you know, by, by creating massive amounts of money into corporations, we increased supply. And supply created deflation. So why in the world would decreasing supply create less inflation? Now, at some point, the two meet because if you, again, like I said, if you drop a bomb on the forest to clear the underbrush, yeah, you'll do it. The forest will be gone as well. But ultimately, in terms of what, what the goal should be is to balance supply and demand in a way that still keeps growth and, and doesn't create creative destruction and liquidation markets. And um, to that end, they can't do that with monetary policy. They need to affect demand. Um, I don't know how you do that without uh, some kind of, of, you know, and, and uh, address inequality at the same time. It's essentially structurally impossible. The only way you can do that is really through supply side fiscal policies that help demand and supply. You need to meet demand that the money that we're sending to the lower classes, right, with more supply. And we're actually doing the opposite. 
you know, we're removing money from supply. So it's, it's not the right tools to, uh, you know, yes, again, at the end of the day, if they want to blow up the economy, it's a very blunt instrument. They can through the wealth effect in the short term, and they can cause a depression, um, if they really want to, but that's ultimately going to remove money from supply and demand. And it's going to do it enough that the prices, uh, make, you know, will likely come down somewhat, but, but it's more likely to be stagflationary than anything. Um, and, and that's kind of a worst case, uh, situation. You know, the goal shouldn't be to increase, to decrease, uh, demand through trickle down by removing supply because the net effect is actually, um, you know, very, very inefficient, um, and, and very painful to the broad, um, kind of secular growth of the economy. When we, when we think about increasing supply, I mean, what are some of the things they could do there? I mean, I guess they could do something like credits for energy people, you know, for people who produce energy, like tax credits, is that the type of thing they should be looking at? Efficient policy should have a multiplier on it. Um, there's lots of great fiscal policy that, that very few of our politicians do. They'll eventually get to the right answer after making all the wrong answer, doing all the wrong things first. But the right answers are, um, education, um, infrastructure, um, you know, things that ultimately drive more efficient supply, right? Uh, of labor, of, uh, of, of tools of production, right? Um, research and development has a multiplier. There's lots kinds of things that we can throw there that ultimately, um, do a wonderful job of creating secular growth within an economy and they do it in a supply side way. Um, you need to do those types of things and those are structural. It takes time. Um, but those are the things that drive real structural growth as opposed to engineered growth, um, through just simply supply side economics that ultimately drive inequality and drive a bigger boom bust cycle. Um, again, I'm not here to kind of, uh, you know, run for president or do anything that's going to, you know, change policy. Uh, when, you know, we're, we're here to trade, but the reality is policy itself, um, is, is relatively broken. Hopefully at some point we can all agree that those supply side responses and ones that, and I think we will eventually, and those supply side responses, which are fiscal, where everybody benefits, both corporations and individuals, um, can be met with fiscal policy to people to, to create a better long-term outcome. You're not going to use the excess returns podcast to launch the gem for president <laughs> uh, campaign. <laughs> um, just one more for me before I hand it back to Justin. A lot of our listeners are value investors. They would kill me if I didn't ask about this, but it seems like a lot of your macro ideas, you know, we, we had a really long period where value investors struggled. And it seems like a lot of your macro ideas would be pretty positive in the next decade for value relative to growth. I mean, do I have that right? Absolutely. Absolutely. So, so we kind of gave this, we've given this analogy before, um, I'll do it here again, but you know, uh, there, think of, uh, valuations as, a as the altitude on an airplane, right? Um, yeah, ultimately that altitude doesn't matter if you're on that airplane, whether you're at a thousand feet or 20,000 feet or 30,000 feet, doesn't affect your trajectory. Um, what matters is the liquidity that's ultimately firing those jets, which is that monet supply demand imbalance. There's more demand than supply than markets go up. Right. Um, and you don't really care about that valuation, but it is a risk management tool. Value matters when the jets stop firing. And that's why it is somewhat predictable over a 10 year and multi-decade period, because it doesn't matter for long periods of time, but then ultimately it does matter as a put 
on a business. It's a risk management tool. Valuation is. And at the end of the day, when those kids stop firing, that's all that matters. How far off, your, off the ground you are is ultimately the, the, the most important factor. And guess what? Those jets are sput, 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 sputtering, right? Uh, and as they do, all of a sudden people are looking for, looking out the window saying, holy crap, we are, uh, I don't know if I can use that on your podcast, but we are way off the ground. Um, and, and, um, you know, the reality is, um, the stocks that aren't that far off the ground who have a much easier job, not only landing the plane, but they happen to have a generator on board. They happen to have the ability to kind of, uh, they have some, their own cash flows, right. That they can ultimately throw back into that. You shovel some coal back into that engine, right. To keep it going. And that'll create buybacks. That'll create buying of other corporations and other things that are going through a creative destruction, great ideas and create growth for the long run as well. So value matters uh, to the extent it creates demand, but the amount of demand that that generates in a normal cycle, given infinite liquidity is relatively small amount is very little, but when there's no liquidity, that's all that matters. And so, um, value, this is a period where discounted cash flows will once again matter. Woohoo! It's almost like uh, crazy to think, right? Um, actual cash on cash returns, um, is what ultimately will matter, um, you know, for corporations. So, um, you know, get out your kind of DCF models again. Uh, it's actually going to make a big difference. Jim, we've covered a lot in this podcast. Um, and hopefully we didn't do any permanent damage to your voice. Um, and, but if this is the last one for you for a while, I think it's going to be a great one. Um, so we really appreciate all the wisdom and the thoughts that you've shared. And we like to end, um, each podcast with asking our guests, um, sort of this standard closing question, which is based on your experience in the market, if you could impart one piece of wisdom or teach one lesson to your average investor, what would that be? So we talked a lot about dealer positioning already. I think that's the biggest takeaway, right? That's part of why people kind of follow me and are interested in, in, in kind of what we're, uh, we're talking about. But the other day, like I mentioned, that's one part of one critically important thing. The only thing which is supply and demand. I think so many people just lose sight of that simple little thing. How many buyers are there and how many sellers are there? We obfuscate this by thinking about second order factors like fundamentals. Fundamentals matter. The cash flow of the corporation is part of that supply and demand, but we lose sight of how many buyers versus sellers are there ultimately. You should never, ever lose sight of it. And I guess my corollary to that, and what I'll leave you with outside of that is liquidity. That word is everything. Liquidity can mean the thing that spurs demand and that creates enough liquidity to keep it going. It can also mean the removal of it, right? Is there isn't enough demand or there's not enough money to go around. But it's also important to think about when you're trading and you're positioning, how liquid you are and how liquid the things you're investing. Um, ultimately it doesn't matter how much demand there is today or tomorrow for something that won't ultimately have liquidity at some point. It doesn't matter what its earnings are. If it doesn't have access to markets, that's true in the option space as well. That's true in derivatives and everywhere. When you invest in something or you put a trade on you better believe liquidity, you better have been in a position of strong liquidity, particularly in a period like this. 
There's a reason the name, the, the word long-term is in uh, long-term capital management. Uh, I can't stress this enough. Long-term capital management blew up because they were short puts that were long dated against things that are short. They were short illiquid things versus things that were liquid. If you position yourself in a place of illiquidity, particularly, particularly this period of lack of liquidity in a leptocurtic market with fat tails, which is what we're in right now, um, you will ultimately lose. And no matter how good the bet looks, no matter how, um, you know, uh, cheap something may seem, um, you will be in a position of illiquid lack of buyers versus sellers. And when you get to that point of a lack of, uh, you know, uh, buyers versus sellers, and you're on the wrong side of that, you will lose a lot of money. So never lose sight of supply and demand. Always understand your liquidity uh, point and always think of it in terms of, of, of the amount of money um, that is uh, available at any given moment to, to, to fund supply and demand. Jim, if people want to follow you on Twitter or learn more about your firm, Kai Volatility Advisors, where can they go? So I'm pretty active on Twitter, uh, a little less than I used to be, but uh, still quite active at jam, J-A-M underscore croissant. Uh, that's a play on my actual name. Um, and then the name of the, uh, the firm is Kai Volatility. Uh, you can go to our, our website, kaivolatility.com. We have three hedge funds um, that we um, that, the, that are available for uh, accredited uh, and QEP investors, um, both uh, one of them a long vol hedging product, um, a one a vol arb product, which is relative value vol, and the last, which you know, takes advantage of dealer positioning. Um, and we're newly launching a multi-strat that invests across all three. So that if anybody has any interest, uh, you can always uh, request a meeting with me or one of my team on the Kai Volatility uh, website. So look forward to chat with anybody who's interested. Great. Thank you very much. We appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for having me, guys. Great chatting. Hi, guys. This is Justin again. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode of Excess Returns. You can follow Jack on Twitter at, at PracticalQuant and follow me on Twitter at, at JJ Carbonell. If you found this discussion interesting and valuable, please subscribe in either iTunes or on YouTube or leave a review or a comment. We appreciate it.